0: Let me tell you what this political movement is about. Jobs and growth for all Australians. We're on jobs and growth, have great jobs. Economic growth, strong growth, more jobs.
1: When they go low, we go high. So I'm
0: seeing in my mind something very similar with this bill to a colonoscopy. It Let
2: me fair just stop enough. you so you don't waste a line of questioning. I'm just giving
0: uh, you... I love the mansplaining. I would build a great wall and nobody builds walls better
1: than me, believe me.
0: Please clap. Please clap. This is represent. 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 represent.
1: represent.
3: represent. 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 On Sid Nation. Welcome to, the of the and welcome to represent on Sid ninety point seven. This is the young p- political talk show, and welcome to your hour of politics. I'm Zizi. I'm Oscar. I'm Ben. I'm Isadora. And today we're going to be talking about the same-sex marriage postal plebiscite and Trump's new tensions with North Korea. And of course, uh, as always, we're going to be doing our usual pop chat. Now you can follow the conversation um, on Twitter at SYNRepresent and our Facebook on Facebook.com forward slash represent. But before we start talking, we're going to go to a song. This is Aretha Franklin's Respect. (laughs) That was Aretha Franklin's Respect. And before we move on to our next conversation, we should just remember that we should have a lot of respect in our next conversations on both sides of politics. So we're going to be talking about same-sex marriage today uh, and obviously the announcement that the Turnbull government will be pushing ahead with the postal plebiscite um, in the next coming months. So um, obviously there are a lot of complications when it comes to the postal plebiscite um, and one of them is the fact that... um, it's a non-binding vote and it's completely based off people volunteering to send in their registration. So have you guys all registered? Uh, I mean obviously those that can vote, have you registered to vote already? Yeah so uh,
2: when I heard the um, postal vote was happening I went online and I checked my uh, enrolment at the AEC's, the Australian Electoral Commission's website and it's really easy, you can just chuck in your details, check to see if you've been, if you're enrolled, um, usually you know if you're enrolled because you've probably voted before, um, but perhaps you want to check whereabouts you're enrolled, um, which electorate you're um, supposed to be voting in. So I'd recently moved um, states and i changed electorates, so I updated my details, um, which I'd forgotten to do when I moved. So it's not really the forefront of your mind when you're moving houses, but um, but, uh, yeah, I'm a bit ashamed that I'd left it so long, but it prompted me to um, check and update my details on the AEC's website, which it seems that a lot of people are doing. Um, the AEC um, put out a tweet yesterday um, saying that, you know, above-average um, inquiries into their website, and you can also phone, I believe. Um, so it's really important if you're on the roll to check that you're... Um, Voting in, or, or you're in the right electorate, and update your details if you um, obviously have moved. So,
4: yeah, so I, I'm I turned eighteen back in February and I hadn't enrolled to vote yet. There's hasn't been an election since I've been eighteen, so yeah, a couple of days ago I enrolled to vote and be encouraged by my friends <coughs> who've just turned eighteen or turn eighteen in the next few weeks to hurry up and get on the voting bandwagon.
3: Of course, the AEC estimates that there's over eighty thousand. Um, 800,000 people missing from the election roll, so it's very important that all of us who are eligible to vote uh, go out and do so uh, and make sure our voices are, are are heard and that we actually get the letter in the mail asking us about our opinions. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is a particularly, um,
2: particularly an issue for young um, Australians, so uh, even though as you go through the um, generations, the decades that you get older, there still remains People who are not on the um, roll—it's uh, particularly a problem um, for young people, having more of a percentage of the um, age bracket that are not on the roll. And th- of course, that makes sense. Um, you know, you're coming into your um, political um, privilege of voting and, and your obligation as a citizen. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really important. Um, this might be a great opportunity. Um, with all of this um, focus um, mm. for this um, particular vote, although it's really just a survey, um, to activate a whole lot of people who might otherwise have ignored that um, call to put themselves on the on the electoral roll.
3: And for those of you who have registered recently, uh, as I updated my details as well, you'll notice that the... Australian Electoral Commission is actually marking why you chose to update your details. And I marked down the fact that same-sex marriage postal plebiscite was coming up. So obviously they're recording data on how much this is going to spark, I guess, a political awareness in some groups. And uh, as we mentioned before, the AEC has uh, had record uh updating of details, uh, I believe there was 68,000 enrolment transactions in one day compared to the average of 4,000. So it's huge interest, and it's really sparking people to become politically active and aware.
5: Yep. And another interesting thing about this is that the um, vote is not actually being managed by the Australian Electoral Commission. It's been managed by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, mm. who have declared that the um Postal vote is a statistical information.
2: Yeah, so it's a survey rather than a vote. Well, that's what they're arguing. Of course, there is a challenge. Yeah, Yeah, so there's a challenge, but um, as it stands right now, we're preparing Mm. to um, record our opinion in a survey rather than um, vote with the AEC. But, of course, it's important to update your details with the AEC because they'll be providing that information to the ABS. Which is yes.
3: where the ambiguity in the High Court challenge is. See, if we're all registering through the Australian Electoral Commission and yet it's technically only polled through the um, Australian Bureau of Statistics, the question is, is this a vote which would have to pass the Senate or is this merely um, as the Australian Bureau of Statistics is asserting just uh, an opinion poll, a very elaborate opinion poll. but
4: Yeah, and that also raises the issue of how much money it will cost and if the Finance Minister has the approval to allocate the funds for this survey. Because if it's found that the ABS cannot conduct it, then the funds cannot be transferred for them to use it, which therefore means it has to go through Parliament and the Senate to pass any sort of postal vote.
5: Well, um... I have checked on this. Um, so the finance minister made a, um, I think it was a determination or some sort of statutory instrument, um, to give the funding for the postal plebiscite, and that is one of the subjects of the challenges in the High Court. Um, and one of the arguments, I'm pretty sure, is that the, um, section that gives the finance minister the, um, that power is unconstitutional.
2: Yeah, so we're obviously alluding now to, yeah, the High Court challenge, um, which basically as soon as the government... Um, failed, they tried to put up the um, original plebiscite bill again and it failed the Senate earlier yeah. this week and then they went to this Plan B model which is the postal, yeah. the, the so-called postal plebiscite but really just a postal survey. Yeah. Um, as soon as that happened, um, wheels started rolling into motion and there is a High Court challenge which has been adjourned until later.
5: Um, the 5th and 6th of September.
2: Right, so we can wait with great interest uh, until September, um, but as the debate continues around the issues at hand in terms of um, people putting in their um, op- opinion in this survey, um, there's also the legal debate um, occurring at the same time. So um, yes. both the political and legal debate occurring yes. concurrently. So there's,
5: there's two actions that were brought before the High Court, from my understanding... Um, one was, um, brought by Andrew, well, one, one was brought by Andrew Wilkie, who was an independent member of parliament for Tasmania, as well as a lesbian, lesbian mum and an an organisation that I don't quite remember the name of.
4: It was, um, P-flat Parents and Friends of Lesbian and Gays.
5: Yes. Um and there was a different one that was brought by the um, well the green there's a green senator who was um a part of it, but i don 't quite remember the other names
3: oh, well that 's fine, obviously, these high court decisions are pending and may yes. end up um something we should really watch because this might all end up in a in a null vote, and we 'll be back to the same. Parliamentary debates, as we always have, with the same-sex marriage um, issue. Um, If it does fail, obviously we'll be looking at whether the Liberal Party pushes forward on a uh, conscience vote. Uh, But until then, I think it's just important that don't don't wait on a high court decision. Make sure you get out and get registered. Um, Absolutely. But but the um, the government has
5: made an undertaking to the high court that they won't distribute ballots. until after the decision's been made, um, which the government, from my understanding, doesn't have to follow that undertaking, but it it would be quite embarrassing if they decide to start distributing the ballots and the High Court ruled against them. It would
3: be quite foolish if we spent a lot of money on a vote <laughs> that was non-binding and then wasn't constitutional as well, <laughs> which would be quite a different issue. Of course, there's another legal issue that hasn't made it to the High Court, but is making the rounds on Twitter. And that's whether or not 16 and 17-year-olds will be eligible to vote in the postal plebiscite. Uh, this is because of a technicality of how the government worded their their bill or their, their statement of the postal plebiscite, which basically could technically allow 16 or 17-year-olds. However, the 18... Um, the Australian Electoral Commission has tweeted out in response to the speculation that they don't believe it's true, but we could see this facing the courts sometime soon as well.
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, my understanding about that was that uh, the 16 and 17 year olds, when they enroll to vote, they're technically provisionally enrolled, so they're not on the full electoral roll, and the electoral roll is what the AEC is providing to the Bureau of Statistics. And people were wondering if those provisionally enrolled are also in that data set. The AEC said no, they're not full enrollments until they turn 18, and that's when they transfer over to the electoral roll.
3: Mm. Of course, this could be very interesting to our listeners. Um, and also getting on the provisional roll is a great way to not forget about enrolling before the, a big election. So it's always good to... Plan ahead.
2: (laughs) Yeah, basically, guys, while you're listening to us now or when you finish, get on to the um, Australian Electoral Commission's website. Enroll to vote if you haven't already. If you're under 18 and you're about to come up to your birthday, enrol to vote and check... If you've already enrolled, check your enrolment. It's just really important and absolutely essential to being an Australian citizen in this great democracy of us.
3: Yes, Democratic rights are something we shouldn't throw away because we're too bored to update our residential address. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So I guess what we should move on to is the fact, what I think we were all alluding to before, is the fact that this is a non-binding... Can we call it a vote? It's a non-binding poll of the Australian populace who don't actually need a vote. Um, I guess the discussion is, like, is a non-binding plebiscite a good way to spend our time and our taxpayer dollars I guess. What do you guys think?
4: In my view it should just be an issue that parliament needs to deal with and resolve themselves. There's no logical reason why it needs to turn into a postal vote or ballot or however you would wish to call it. It's an issue that cl- can c- clearly be passed through parliament like what happened back in 2005 with the <coughs> Howard Amendments to the Marriage Act. <coughs> so it doesn't need to be continue so it doesn't need to be redone through a post ballot just through Parliament
2: yeah so obviously um, we've come to this juncture because there's been um, a failure of the Parliament to pass um, legislation and um, in particular there's been a failure of the Liberal Party room to uh, come up with a, a position on this other than to take this to the Australian people in the form of a plebiscite um, and so it's really a, a unique case in that respect because you know the Westminster parliamentary democracy system that we have uh, it's it, our debates are supposed to be held in um, parliament unless they're um, regarding the constitution and then we'll have um, referenda to um, look at those issues. But, um, yeah, the, it's been a really um, extraordinary week in in terms of getting this um, in motion. And there haven't been very many plebiscites or postal surveys in our history. Um, so it, it's quite a historic occasion.
5: Um, yeah, and, I mean, I guess kind of my thoughts is, like, I guess, because a lot of this doesn't affect a lot of doesn't affect the majority of the australian population so i guess it's also you know why do they have to interfere in um gay lesbians lives and yeah cuz like with brexit that was an issue brexit affects everyone um well the european union affects everyone more specifically but this matter it doesn't affect everyone and
3: Yeah, Yeah. so the last few plebiscites, there's only actually been three formal plebiscites, and of course this isn't a formal plebiscite either, but the last three formal plebiscites, uh, one was in 1916, so while we were in World War I, a long time ago, um, was whether we would enforce military conscription. Obviously it's something that affected every single Australian Well everyone who is eligible to fight, but that affects all their families. Uh, The next one was another one relating to military conscription and overseas forces. And of course, the last plebiscite actually decided our national anthem. So, I don't know, is that something that has had the same debate over whether it's worthy to be voted on by the national public? I'm not sure.
2: I mean, I think you it's an interesting thing in terms of um, democracy, innovation in Australia, because, I mean, there's quite a lot of people who are very keen to have more of an impact Um, they look to places that have um, voting on specific issues more often than us in, you know, some European parliaments, they um, get, take a a sort of a poll of um, the population regarding specific um, bills quite often, and I think um, people are um, generally um, up to the task of, of having those um, burdens placed on them in terms of voting on particular things. And I think a lot of people get excited about that because it's, you know, you're having another moment to exercise your democratic right. However, of course, in Australia, it is not a tradition so it is a little bit um, alien to the culture of um, democracy in this country and I think that's where it's an interesting moment that what has forced us into this um, position has been um, yeah, really quite exceptional.
3: Yes, um, so of course the only reason we're talking about a plebiscite is because of the internal party divisions in the Liberal Party at the moment. Um, and so obviously you have... Uh, different factions pushing for different methods for voting, many outside people are seeing this as just a stalling tactic to delay same-sex marriage being enforced. And the majority of Australians in a recent poll said that they wanted Parliament just to deal with it. Um, So we're going to go to a clip, um, and this is Tony Abbott. Um, Obviously, our former Prime Minister has very strong opinions about same-sex marriage, um, as one who first flagged the idea of the plebiscite.
0: It's existed for centuries, and it's only right and proper that the entire Australian people should have their say. So well done to Malcolm Turnbull and the government for making sure that this is going to happen.
3: Mr Abbott, you wanted a plebiscite, but it appears that a postal vote is inevitable. Are you disappointed at all?
0: No, I think it's important that all of us make the most of the opportunity that we now have. Uh, Obviously, I'll be voting no. But in the end, this is not about the politicians. This is about the people. It's about your view. And I say to you, uh, if you don't like same-sex marriage, vote no. If you're worried about religious freedom and freedom of speech, vote no. And if you don't like political correctness, vote no, because voting no will help to stop political correctness in its tracks.
3: And if Australia votes yes in that post, the start... So that was Tony Abbott, obviously, speaking about... His faction's opinion on the the plebiscite, um, and obviously there's a lot of internal debate, and we were um, between the different factions pushing for different things. Obviously, there are some who are pushing for a conscience vote, um, and those people are usually pro same-sex marriage. And then you have the more conservative factions who talk about, you know, the need to delay this, and well, not delay, yes, <laughs> to to get a national opinion on this change. Um, And so they're pushing for the postal plebiscite.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, it's hard not to see this, um, you know, aside from the actual issues at hand, it's hard not to see this in the frame of liberal division and leadership um, challenges Um, Australian politics seems at times obsessed with this sort of um, look Um, and um, constantly looking at ex-Prime Ministers gunning for the Prime Ministers that have um, ousted them. I mean, that's just been a perpetual cycle for the last uh, almost decade, Mm. um, which is exhausting. But having said that, it is very hard not to look at this issue playing out, and it has played out... um, you know, since before Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister um, to today and it will continue for at least a couple more months. Um, the I think commentators have been speaking about this, the reason why this issue, which is mainly symbolic, is really important to some people, but perhaps not for the rest of Australia, it, it not sort of a first-order issue compared to something like the economy. Um, why has this become such a big issue? big issue for the Liberal Party, Um, people have said things like, um, it's a fight for the soul of the Liberal Party, or it's a fight for the future of the Liberal Party, whether it be moderate um, or more conservative, and um, I think John Howard famously talked about the broad church of the Liberal Party bringing together those two camps under one roof, and I think this is... Just a sign of the division in the Liberal Party, and moving forward, who um, claims the, the sort of legacy of this period of government um, and sets the agenda for the next couple of decades?
3: Yeah, I think it's it is important to read this kind of political struggle not as leadership challenges that we saw in you know the Rudd and Gillard times. This is much more an ideological battle between very distinct ideologies of what liberal the liberal party means and who they represent
4: yes so as to seem as the more socially um, sorry the more socially liberal side of the liberal party is trying to push the way past the conservative fraction but this ballot will be a huge test to see if Malcolm Turn- Malcolm Turnbull can Keep the, Lib- uh, keep the Conservatives at bay and still remain in his position.
3: The concern, of course, is the fact that I- in terms of this issue rather than broad ideological battles, the concern with this issue is the, the, the postal vote remains non-binding. So even if we have you know, a distinctive win for either side, when it hits the Liberal Party and how they pass their vote when they do decide on the matter, it could end up basically back where we are.
2: Yeah, I think Malcolm Turn- Turnbull's been pretty strong on the fact that, you know, if there's a, a no vote um, from at the, as a result of this um, survey by the ABS, um, that would be the end of the matter. As in, the Liberal Party will move on and this won't be an issue for them. Um, mm. They won't bring anything to Parliament. The Liberals that are pushing for it will have to um, shut up. And um, I'm not quite sure that that is um, wholly, um, yeah, the the possibility that will be um, adhered to. I mean, um, there are the the moderates who pushed for this um, uh, bringing a a vote in Parliament on Monday at the start of the week. Um, Some have indicated that, they want a vote in Parliament no matter the outcome of this survey and um, the issues around the legitimacy of it are just going to play into that. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a real problem. Um, so it's important for Australians to take it seriously but perhaps, yeah, we'll, we'll see if this ultimately decides the issue.
3: Of course this this frustration over whether or not this big Slightly expensive vote will actually result in anything, has resulted in a lot of people calling for a boycott. Um, what, what do you guys think about the idea of boycotting a vote?
5: Um, well, I think if, I think it's bad for your side if you're going to argue that, because other, because then you're basically saying... Because if, if the other side wins, then they can say, oh, look, our side clearly has the majority of the Australian population... So, you know, if if you're going to boycott it, I think it's kind of, in a way, it only hurts your own side.
3: I think it's important to note that, like, a lot of the people who are against the idea of a postal plebiscite or even a plebiscite have said, now that we've got this, now that it's coming up, there's no point talking about the system in which we're playing. We just need to win the game. And I think that's very important, in my opinion. But obviously, we have people. Who are calling for the boycott on the other yeah, side?
4: The most notable being uh, Michael Kirby, the former High Court judge. But
3: he's
4: retracted. Oh, he has, has he? Yeah. So, so, so he's,
3: he's retracted his statements. Um, but obviously, originally, he had been calling for yes. a boycott. There are still people who are calling for it, but I think the distinctive move is largely in favour of just getting out there and getting registered. Absolutely, yeah. So um, people have just. Um,
2: taken take the view that now that this is potentially going to go ahead um, that you just have to um, commit 100% now to the vote and, um, and put your money where your mouth is and, and really um, put yourself out there.
3: And I think one of the best voices in Parliament talking about that right now is actually, or in, in the Senate right now, is actually Senator Penny Wong. Um, and so we're going to throw to a clip from her in Parliament
1: because some in the coalition can never countenance equality. And they're never going to change their minds. They simply cannot countenance uh, people like me and others being equal. Simple as that. They're not going to change their minds on this issue. And I do want to respond to the uh, comment by Senator Cormann that this could be a unifying moment. But I tell you. Have a read of some of the things which are said about us and our families, and then come back here and tell us this is a unifying moment. The Australian Christian Lobby described our children as the stolen generation. We love our children, and I object, as do every person who cares about children, and as do all those couples in this country, same sex couples who have kids to being told our children are a stolen generation. You talk about unifying moments, it's not a unifying moment. It's exposing our children to that kind of hatred. And I wouldn't mind so much if you were prepared to speak out on it, if the Prime Minister were prepared to stand up and say, that is wrong. But what does he do? Oh, it's a dreadful reason to to, to say, you know, not to not trust the Australian people. And, you know, don't be silly. Of course we can have a sensible debate. Well, maybe he should stand up for some of the people who don't have a voice. Because we know the sort of debate that is already there. And let me say for many children in same-sex couple parented families and for many young LGBTI kids, this ain't a respectful debate already.
3: So on that note, I think we should all remember that we should extend respect on this quite uh, troubling issue of human rights. We should maintain respect for both sides because there are strong opinions in the community. Now, if our discussion has affected you in any way, please remember to call Lifeline on one three double one one four or the Kids Helpline on 1-800-551-800. Uh, you can also contact QLife um, on one 800 184 Two seven. Now we're going to go to another song This is Back to the USSR By the Beatles Represent on Sin Nation. Right now, we're talking about the impending doom of a Trump North Korea battle. So, obviously, for a bit of background, uh, recently uh, military um, officials announced that intelligence officers had believed that North Korea has the ability to scale down nuclear missiles material in order to put on an uh, intercontinental ballistic missile very worrying technological development to come out of intelligence services, Um, a very scary rapid development of the hermit kingdom. And so this prompted, as it always does, a tweet from the President of the United States. Um,
2: Yeah, so uh, Trump, on his personal account, uh, said... Military solutions are now fully in place, locked and loaded, should North Korea act unwisely. Hopefully Kim Jong-un will find another path. And I think, uh, um, admittedly, my Donald Trump impersonation needs a little bit of work. But um, I think it's interesting to view his tweet in the context of the last couple of days. He talked about... Um, bringing bringing down fire and fury such as the world had never seen before onto North Korea should they make the wrong move. It's been a real um, escalation in rhetoric from the president Um, and I think his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, has tried to calm that rhetoric somewhat um, but all eyes do focus on the president of the United States on this matter. Yeah. Um, He is the... um, Commander-in-Chief of the US military. So um, it's hard to ignore his statements on this.
5: And it's also interesting how no one's really been paying attention to what South Korea thinks about all of this. It's all what
3: America thinks. Mm. Well, I think South Korea is always concerned when there is any development of Mm. nuclear technology in their near neighbour. We have to remember that Seoul is a mere, like, 100 kilometres away from North Korea. And they are constantly in fear of... An attack. Of course, this development isn't actually specifically targeting or worrying South Korea because South Korea has always been or has largely been in a North Korean attack zone. What is worrying is this technology could allow for a long range nuclear attack, something that North Korea couldn't do before. Um, and obviously, the US has been a long time participant in the nuclear, uh, with negotiations with North Korea as a whole. Um, and so they're kind of seen as the protectorate of the region from North Korea. We have to remember that um, America still has troops in South Korea um, and technically the Korean War has never ended because of the exact nature of the armistice that was signed uh, at the in the 50s. So it is relevant that America is talking about this um, but we also need to remember the other parties involved. So obviously we've got Japan, who's has seen some increasing um, uh, nuclear activity in the re- non-nuclear military activity in the region. There's been a lot of missile tests that have landed in the Sea of Japan. Obviously that's worrying Japan, um, and of course South Korea is always threatened by North Korea. Um, yeah.
2: The other big actor, of course, is China. Mm. Um, they're seen as um, having this sort of special interest in North Korea. Um, the Americans, I think, wish that the Chinese would push harder mm. um, on, on this issue, but they are their own actor. China is um, advising to take things a little um, more gently, mm. um, which is obviously in contrast to... Some of the rhetoric.
3: Well, I I think we need a China is often used as a scapegoat in the North Korean conversations. We talk about you know uh, Donald Trump talks about China like maintaining the regime and like f- allowing them to maintain stability. But I think China is rightfully worried about a very unstable North Korea right at their border, um, and especially an unstable nuclear-armed state. I think it's completely rational for China to want to have, you know, at least a partially stable, um, if erratic, neighbour, as opposed to a, com- a stateless void right next to them. Um, but we, we can talk about how Trump um, has kind of led a completely different... Uh, North Korean policy. Uh, When he came to power, he announced the end of strategic patience, which was the overriding policy by the Obama administration. And a lot of people, including experts in North Korea, saw that it was a complete failure. So strategic patience was basically waiting for the regime to reform from within. And obviously we haven't seen that at all, um, especially not from the new Kim Jong-un, who took power only a few years ago. Um, What's interesting maybe is... Trump's, uh, no, sorry, Trump getting uh, Australia to reaffirm our military alliance Um, and we'll throw to a clip of Malcolm Turnbull speaking on this.
0: Defence Minister and I here at the Department of Defence meet with the Chief of the Defence Force, other Defence Chiefs, intelligence and foreign policy experts to receive briefings on the situation on the Korean Peninsula. Once again, we call on the North Korean regime to stop its illegal, reckless, provocative conduct which is putting the peace and the stability of the region at risk, and indeed the peace and stability of the whole world at risk. We join with the global community in enforcing sanctions, economic sanctions against the North Korean regime to bring it to its senses. We welcome the decision of the UN Security Council recently supported by China and Russia to impose harsher sanctions on North Korea. Now, as I discussed with Vice President Pence last night, both the United States and Australia are committed to resolving the situation on the Korean Peninsula, to bringing the North Korean regime to its senses through diplomatic and economic means. But we stand shoulder to shoulder with the United States. The ANZUS Treaty means that if America is attacked, we will come to their aid, If Australia is attacked, the Americans will come to our aid. We are joined at the hip. The American alliance is the bedrock of our national security. Thanks very much.
3: So that was Malcolm Turnbull obviously reaffirming the classic ANZUS treaty um, with the United States and basically saying that if there were any military aggression in North Korea with American retaliation, we would become involved in a new Korean war. So quite a scary prospect, I think, for... Many people. Um, what do you guys think about temple statements?
4: Well, it's quite interesting how it's worded and how we will invoke ANZUS to help support the United States. In that ANZUS doesn't actually say how a country would help one another. It just says, in consultation, we will provide aid or support. So that could mean anything from a briefing given to Australia about the situation, or could. Turn into a full-blown military intervention. So it'll be interesting to see if anything does further escalate how Australia will be balking to this situation.
3: Mm. Well, I think Australia has long affirmed our military relationship with the US. Obviously, we've got the classic example of the American troops in Darwin, the fact that we're used as a American military base in the region, and of course we have a huge intelligence. Um, agency and cooperation with the US, um, all based up north. So our military links are quite strong. Um, so I, I'm I wasn't exactly surprised when Malcolm Turnbull said that we would stand behind the US because we have every single time. Uh, what is surprising is the fact that Malcolm Turnbull felt the need to reestate our um, our commitment. I think this marks a an awareness of Australia that this could actually become uh, a a conflict in our region in the near future. And I think that's a worrying signal. Um,
4: Yeah, it was such a strong statement and something that we haven't really seen before in Australia about our military or helping another country since probably the Second World War where Australia will possibly be directly involved in this.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because... um, Earlier, the the Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, had used less strong language. She talked about there being no automatic trigger for Australia to join the US in um, action against North Korea in in that um, possibility. Um, So Turnbull strengthening that... um, uh, I mean, I don't know if it says anything in particular, but it just is interesting... um, there is like a huge history, as you mentioned, of Australia backing US, uh, the US, um, and the the recent um, statements from Labor on on foreign policy issues have been indicating a little bit of a shift towards uh, a sort of more independent position. So um, viewed as a whole, perhaps there's a conversation there that Australia just hasn't had for a number of years about our foreign policy interests. Mm.
3: I think there is always the role of um, the foreign minister to scale back comments in terms of diplomacy. Um, But it'll be an interesting space to watch and obviously North Korea, endlessly fascinating and our relationship with the region is something we should keep an eye on. Um, We're going to go to another song. We're going to go to the B-52s, Rock Lobster. Uh, Please enjoy. (laughs) The beat. Everybody had that
4: in Somebody went under a dock and there they saw a rock. It wasn't a rock, it was a rock
3: lobster. That was the B 52's Rock Lobster, and of course, that transitions perfectly into our discussion of Victorian state politics in Pop Chat. So. This week, we've seen a huge political scandal for opposition leader, Matthew Guy, uh, when it was revealed that um, he had a lobster dinner with an, an alleged mafia boss, Tony Medef- Um And so this has obviously sparked huge controversy and calls for all kinds of political action to be taken, some even calling for him to resign from opposition leader. Um, What do you guys think about the revelations? Is this enough to cause political upheaval in the opposition?
5: Um, Well, it seems as if, for the most part, people are standing by him. Well, most of his party members are standing by him, so I don't think it's going to cause too much internal division, although, of course, the Victorian Liberal Party has seen some division before in terms of... Remember, there was this thing about... There was a a little bit of a scandal about the um, president of the Liberal Party. I think it was something like that. Mm.
4: The main concern for Matthew Guy at the moment would probably be his public perception and how the public would view him after this. Due to his um, tough-on-crime stance and his view on crime in Victoria, it's going to be interesting to see how the public now view him after this and if they still stand by him or if they... No longer believe in what he says.
2: Yeah, it's it's perhaps less about the sort of facts of you know alleged you know political donations or um, donations for action, and more about the perception. Um, uh, it's perhaps if you're you're living in Melbourne, you might have noticed posters up around the city um, this week. Uh, it's the opposition leader um, proclaiming his campaign on law and order and safer communities in um, Victoria so he's really leading on this f- foot and um, the perception I think he's trying to get in front of that um, you know he's probably been his worst week as opposition leader he, he's um, he's referred himself to the Victorian um, independent anti-corruption Authority and um, Commission. Commission, <laughs> sorry. Um, IBAC? I ICAC. Okay. I think that's a federal oh, one. But yes, IBAC. Right, yeah. um, and I think we, we've got a little bit of audio from his press conference when he refers himself.
6: So confident am okay. I that I have done nothing wrong, that I have broken no laws, wrought no taxpayers' funds, uh, done nothing of illegality, that I have decided to myself refer this matter onto the, anti, uh, the independent broad-based anti-corruption commission for investigation. So confident am I of my conduct in this matter, the fact that I sought or asked for no political donations, the fact that I went along to a meeting to discuss uh, the matters which I had outlined to the media this morning, uh, I would like to myself refer this matter to have it fully investigated. I believe that is the right thing to do, and I believe that will clear up any matters in relation to probity that some have asked or insinuated around today. Uh, This is a very clear, forceful, proactive way of saying, I believe I've done nothing wrong, and if someone thinks otherwise, well, it will be up to them to go forward and to prove that, or to state that.
3: So, what Matthew Guy is arguing is that there was no discussion of any form of political donations at the dinner um, itself. However, I think it was interesting, a point that you mentioned earlier, which is the fact that the public's perception isn't whether or not a donation occurred, even though we have some evidence and allegations that donations were talked about during the meeting. The point of the matter for the public is not that donations were made, it's that the leader of the opposition has had dinner with an alleged mafia boss. And I think that is something that really is going to undermine his support, especially in terms of his tough-on-crime agenda, which he's really been pushing for in our uh, state parliament. We're going to go to our next pop chat, which is a completely different one, but it's our ongoing saga with Section 44 of the Constitution. Of course, this week, um, as uh, Malcolm Roberts, who is alleged was a British citizen when he applied to run for One Nation, he was interviewed by the media and maybe made a slight slip in his statement.
6: I've always thought that I was British, uh, that I was Australian, always thought that I was Australian.
3: Ooh, that's (laughs) that's a little bit of a slip. And um, so, yeah. so the background to Section 44 um, is obviously you can't have foreign allegiance when you run to become a member of Parliament, and Malcolm Roberts claims he had uh, gotten rid of his British citizenship, or at least... Um, Renounced made, it. made every effort to... Um, Renounce exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Although there is speculation as to whether an email to the British Embassy is a legitimate denunciation. I, I believe he alleges he just emailed them, I am no longer a British citizen, or something to that effect. Whether that is constitutionally valid in terms of giving up your citizenship and renouncing it, that'll be something to test.
4: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the High Court does rule that he had not uh, renounced his citizenship by the election date, and if that's the case, then there'll be a count back to the um, for the Senate seat and it will presumably go to the second place person on the One Nation ticket.
3: Who is Pauline Hanson's sister, I believe. Oh, no, no, sorry. she's
4: the third place. Mm. The second person at the moment is facing bankruptcy proceedings by the courts at the moment. Now, they haven't been found to be bankrupt, but if the proceedings do find them, then that means they are also ineligible to hold a seat in Parliament which would pass down to Pauline Pauline Hanson's sister as a third position.
3: So we have senators who are not even formerly senators already facing troubles with the Constitution. Um, Of course, Section 44 has taken out a lot of political heavyweights recently. We saw the loss of two Green senators, uh, although their issue is quite distinct uh, from the matter with malcolm roberts because they did not know they were italian they were citizens and it's the same with senator sorry uh member of the house of reps matt canavan who also is did not know he was an italian citizen he has not resigned he's still sitting he has resigned his portfolio though so we have a lot of different approaches to this section 44 debate um
4: but all have been recently referred to the High Court, so they should hopefully soon... ..and now the High Court should release their findings and how the Parliament should proceed with these members.
3: Of course, we're going to cut to a quick clip, which is a great summary, I think, of what these constitutional High Court battles are going to be about.
6: In summing up, it's the... Constitution,
0: it's Mabo, it's justice, it's law, it's the vibe, and, uh, no, that's it, it's the vibe. I rest my case. That was sensational.
3: Of course we're expecting a bit more of a fight from all our senators, who will hopefully put up more of a debate than the castle. But we never know what's going to happen with this whole little adventure. Um, So I think that's all the pop chat we have for today. Um, Remember, you can comment on anything we've been talking about today um, on our Twitter feed, which is at SYN represent and our Facebook feed at facebook.com forward slash represent. It's been a wonderful hour of politics. I'm Zizi. I'm Oscar. I'm Ben. I'm Isadora. And I will be back here the same time next week. Have a lovely time. Stay political.